Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. So good to be here with you tonight. Uh, My name is Stephen Castello. I'm the lead pastor at City on a Hill Forest Hills. And I just wanna echo what Janie said. This is an incredible, incredible evening. I have not seen some of you in a year and a half, uh, which is incredible to be able to look look at your face and go, man, like, it's just, it's so good to see you. Some of you I've never met before, which is also really, really exciting. And so God is doing some really incredible things through our network of churches. And I just wanna share a little bit about the City on a Hill Network. If you are not familiar with this whole thing, how we got here, why we all share the same name, um, how this happened, um, you may have some familiarity with um, uh, kind of like multi-site churches or campuses. Our churches are different. They are, we are not campuses. We are independent, autonomous congregations, but we are choosing to gather together under a single name, under a single banner, believing that God could do more through us together than we can apart. And this is the type of vision that God has given the City on a Hill Network, that we look to Jesus, Um, that this isn't about a single person, this isn't about a single church, but this is about what God is doing to create a movement in the city of Boston that starts here and goes beyond us into the rest of the world. And so um, City on a Hill has always had a legacy as a church planting church. Bland Mason and his family moved to, uh, to Boston, moved to Brookline in 2008. And if you know anything about the church planting landscape at that point of time in Boston, the failure rate of new churches was over 90%. And so came in and they joined an incredible church called Hope Fellowship Church in Cambridge um, and started what was now what is now City on a Hill. Um, as Bland started that church a little bit later, Mike Hong came along, Fletcher Lang, others came on to be a part of the staff. Some of you may have been there from the very beginning of City on a Hill. And God began to just do something really unique in the life of this church. Uh, this church, this baby church began to plant churches. In uh, 2012, planted a church in Southie, uh, planted a church in Back Bay, planted a church in Natick, planted an Indian community church in Waltham. And then around 2016, there was this vision birth to see what would happen if a church went from a neighborhood church to a city church, went from a single church to a network of churches doing more together than we could apart. And this vision blossomed into something with kind of five key pillars to what it would really take to be a city church for the next 10, 15, 20 years to see our neighbors experience the good news of Jesus. And those five pillars were this, that we would, experience, we would have radical diversity with uncommon unity. Radical diversity with uncommon unity. People from every walk of life, every tribe, every tongue, every nation united under the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think we see this not just in the people we have in our congregations, but our congregations themselves. If you go from one COA congregation to the next, they are not a carbon copy of each other. They are very different, different temperaments. Some of us have hair, some of us don't. There, there's some differences uh, when it comes to our, our bodies, but with one hope that Jesus is Lord. Also a gospel-shaped idea for justice. We believe that we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that we don't just believe the Great Commission, we believe the Great Commandment to love our neighbors well. And that this is something that is shaped by the gospel. This is not something that we settle for the world's vision of justice or that we have an actionless gospel, but the gospel moves us out into our neighborhoods, into places of brokenness, into places of oppression with the good news of Jesus. That we would be a generous people, 
that we would give of our time, our treasure, our talents, that we would make the sacrifices to go help and plant new churches by either giving of our resources or actually uprooting, leaving friends behind and going and seeing what God could do. Through multiplication, believing that disciples make disciples and churches plant churches and this call to mission, that we would see something happen here locally and globally. And so what came out of this was this network, this movement of the gospel in Boston. And so in 2018, a City on a Hill Somerville was started as Redeemer Fellowship was replanted as City on a Hill Somerville as Fletcher Lang and his family and several others moved there. 2019, Aaron Peters and Emily Peters and their core group moved uh, to Brighton and started City on a Hill Brighton, one mile away from Coolidge Corner. It's an incredible vision of our, of our city that all, Commonwealth Ave could be this dividing line between two completely different groups of people that need individual churches. And then last year, uh, City on a Hill Forest Hills was started in the middle of a pandemic, meeting online three weeks a month and meeting in person once a month, and God somehow birthed the church out of that. Can we, can we take a minute and just praise God for how good he has been to us as a network? Take a minute and just thank God. This is not something we could do on our own. This is not something that we could do by, by sucking it up and trying really hard and, and the, collect, the collection of our abilities and our thoughts and our resources. This is something that we could only do by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the question for us is, what is next? How, how, do, we, how do we move into the future? Let, let's, let's look and see what God does. We don't have that all figured out yet, but we are excited for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of what God can do in this city. And if we're gonna reach the city, if we're gonna reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, or as our church says, that every person from every culture would experience the good news of Jesus, the way we're gonna do this is by radically placing Jesus at the center of our lives. Because constantly we have this pull and this tug in our hearts to put ourselves in the middle, that our lives are constantly about us, but the gospel forces us to put Jesus at the center of, what, of how we live. And this is a radically different life than our culture portrays as good or one that leads to flourishing. Our world has a very different vision for what it looks like to live the good life. And that good life in the world's eyes is with us at the center. And the world that we live in is a very curated world, a very highly curated culture. And we're constantly being bombarded by, by companies and influencers and ideas that want to put you and me and our desires at the very center of our lives. We've all had that ad pop up on Facebook or Instagram, right? You've been talking to Alexa, you did a Google search, and all of a sudden that ad pops up in the middle because these companies know that this is what you want and therefore they're gonna tailor or curate everything they do towards you. The other day, I got a, an ad for a dad bod t-shirt. I was a little offended. Um, I was also kind of curious about it as well. They know that if they can create this sense of, of longing for something that we're just not quite good enough, that there's something out there that we need by placing us and our desires at the center that we'll look for it. And we'll find our, the relief of that by purchasing it. David Foster Wallace wrote this book called Infinite Jest. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's actually a fiction book. And he talks a lot about our longings and our desires and how we're looking for something outside of ourselves. And he says these ads are made to create anxiety. And the way that this anxiety is relieved is through purchasing. See, when we put ourselves at the center of our lives, what begins to happen is we realize that we're actually no more satisfied. In fact, we get less satisfied. We're drawn toward a curated life that's all about us with us at the center because another thing we can do is we can hide our flaws. 
We can hide our, our shortcomings and we can make ourselves look more beautiful or more successful or give off the picture that we have it all together. That's why we take dozens of pictures to get that perfect selfie or that perfect view of our vacation. Or, or if you're an Instagram influencer, hundreds of pictures to get that moment. All of a sudden, the balloon in reality gets popped and reality comes back when someone posts that unflattering picture of you, right? From that unflattering angle. See, the more that we place ourselves at the center, the less authentic we are. The, the less human we actually are. We still on? It died. Oh, there we are. Okay, we're back. We're good. Um, we, we don't like to be seen as we are, but what the Bible actually tells us is that we find our lives by losing it. The less that we're at the center, the more fully human we actually are. The less we're at the center, the more satisfied our souls are. And the reason we know this is because that's the, the life that Jesus chose. Jesus chose to die for us. God came down, took on flesh, and died in our place. And he did so out of his grace, not waiting for us to get it all together. And Romans 5, 8, my very favorite passage in the Bible says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Can you hear me? There we are. Okay, we're back. We're going to make it through, I promise. The God who had all things chose a life of downward mobility, chose to take on the form of a servant to pay for our sins. And so what we do when we look at the cross is we see that there's a whole new motivation for a whole different way to live that no longer has us at the center, but has Jesus and his glory at the center. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So I invite you to turn there with me this evening, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. I'm going to read this when I'm done. I, I'm, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I ha I'd ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. It says in verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, for you leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body or in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. The idea we're going to be unpacking today is that the suffering of Jesus is the motivation for the life that we need to glorify Jesus. And so as we look at this this morning, or this, I did it, this afternoon, um, we're going to look at three aspects of what this looks like. The first we're going to look at is the how of Jesus' suffering. We need to understand how Jesus suffered in order to know how we are to live a life patterned after Jesus's example. For, for three of our congregations, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed series, and we've been looking at different aspects of the Apostles' Creed, how this is the very core of what it means to be a Christian. You have to believe these things in order to be considered an Orthodox Christian. This is what Christians have believed for, for over two millennia. And we've looked at ideas of, about G, uh, God as Father, about Jesus as God the Son. Last week, we looked at the virgin birth. And now we're getting to this line in the Apostles' Creed, which says, He, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. We're going to be looking at the suffering of Jesus that is encapsulated in all of those, his crucifixion, his burial, his death, and then also his suffering when it comes to the type of hell he endured. And so 1 Peter 2, as we look at this passage this evening, um, is an exam- it's set in the context of Jesus being an example or an encouragement to you and I as we suffer. Uh, Edmund Clowney talks about how this is something that is for all Christians. That word you there is a plural you. It is you all or y'all as Southerners would say. And, uh, and Clowney says this. He says, all Christians are called to suffer with Christ before they are glorified with him. Suffering is something that every follower of Jesus will experience. It's not just for the super spiritual. It's not just for those who have seminary degrees. It's not just for those who preach. It's not just for those who lead community groups. It is for every follower of Jesus because the cost of believing is also the cost of discipleship. All of us are called to Jesus, which means all of us are called to suffering. Again, Clowney says that this is not fate. It doesn't mean that we're fatalistic in the idea that there's some sort of boogeyman hanging out around the corner, but there's a calling to suffering because as we follow Jesus, we will suffer. And so don't go looking for suffering, but don't be surprised when suffering comes up in your life. Following Jesus is not the recipe for an easy life. If you are following him, there will be varying degrees of suffering that you are going to face in this life. And rarely will someone who is following Jesus get all the way through this life without suffering because of your faith. A little bit earlier in this passage, Peter talks about how there is a type of suffering that's because of your sin. It's just the ramifications of you making bad decisions. But there's also times where if you are truly longing after Jesus, you're going to suffer because of it. When you live in a neighborhood that is, that, that is very harsh towards the gospel and harsh towards Christians, it's, you're going to suffer. And, and if this hasn't happened to you yet, it's probably just because it hasn't happened to you yet. Or it could be that for some of us, we can, we can tend to prioritize comfort over mission. We can prioritize fear over the boldness of speaking the truth of the gospel Because sometimes it's easier for us to avoid a hard conversation than it is for us to step in and lovingly say, or for us to step, for for us to, to avoid that conversation. Jesus knew that you and I would face trouble in this world. And so he suffers for us as an example. And we see this from Luke chapter 23, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. It says in verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, talking to the, the, the Jewish court that was, before, uh, that was before him, or the Jewish people before him, and he desired to release Jesus. He sees Jesus, he knows that Jesus is innocent, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I, have found him in, I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. That that passage right there is an encapsulation and just a very visible picture of the gospel, that, that he who was guilty was set free while he who was innocent was found guilty was punished. Pilate was the governor over Judea 
and there's this trial happening. He knows that Jesus is wrongfully accused. And he, and he says here, he says, what evil has he done? Last week in our series on the Apostles' Creed, we looked at the incarnation and we talked about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so being fully man, Jesus experienced everything that it is to be human. Everything that you and I face, Jesus has experienced except one thing. Verse 22 here says that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. That is something that you and I could never say. There's not a single person in this room, not a single person in this city, not a single person on this planet who could say that they have lived a perfect life, who can say that they have never sinned. And if maybe for some reason you think I've been a really good person, I've never done anything wrong, we can't say that same thing about our hearts. Just spend an hour in Boston traffic and you will know that you're a sinner. None of us could say that. But we see Jesus at the end of John chapter seven and the beginning of John chapter eight as the woman in adultery is brought before him and the Pharisees ask for him to make a judgment when Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And that the only person there who was without sin refused to do so. Not only was Jesus sinless in his actions, he was sinless in his heart. We see the, the idea of no deceit was found in his mouth. The mouth was understood to be the outlet of the heart. So that whatever was going on in the heart would find its way out into his words. Jesus, in the midst of suffering on the cross, refused to sin against anyone, refused to even say an ill word against anyone. And so why would Jesus choose to suffer in this way? to show us how to suffer, to partly, one part of this is to be an example for us so he could show us what it was like to live a fully human life in every way, that there was nothing that we, that he has felt or that we have felt that he has not felt. Jesus, who was unjustly accused, it says he was reviled and did not revile in return. That word reviled means to have abuse heaped upon you. Jesus at the cross was beaten. He was scourged. He was mocked. The book of Isaiah says that he was beaten beyond human recognition. And that word for not reviling, not retaliating, the way it's written is it's the idea that this was just the way that Jesus lived. Jesus never, not just on the cross, but in his life, chose a life of non-retaliation. That every insult Jesus endured, every doubt people had towards him, every bit of evil that someone tried to put on Jesus, this was just the way of life. He was not going to retaliate. Why didn't Jesus retaliate? Verse 23 tells us that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself, not just that one day he would be found not guilty, not just one day that he would, that God would make everything right, but that God would deal with the shame that Jesus endured. See, in this culture that Jesus was living in, this was a shame and honor culture, which meant that we, we tend to live in a guilt forgiveness culture in America and, and a shame honor culture that was all about, all about whether you were, um, honored or shamed before others. So every public question that Jesus faced was a challenge to Jesus's honor. And so when there was shame and honor kind of became this currency. So in that, in that interchange, when Jesus had those with the Pharisees, Jesus would gain more honor before others and others would lose honor as they left. At the cross, Jesus is enduring the shame that comes with our sin. And it says here that he didn't defend himself. 
In New Testament times, a way that you would show that you were actually innocent of something is you would vehemently defend yourself. For us, we see somebody doing that. We're like, you're a little suspect. I think you're, you're trying a little too hard. Jesus endured this publicly as he was nailed to a cross and never once did Jesus say, do you know who I am? But he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He knew that God would vindicate him and that he would have a name that was above every other name. He knew that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he was Lord. And so as Jesus suffers as an example, this shows us how you and I can face suffering, how you and I can face what it looks like to sacrifice in our lives. That when we're offended, when we're mocked for our beliefs, we don't have to run to our own defense. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have have to defend the gospel. We just have to preach the gospel. You know what Spurgeon said about the gospel? He said, it's kind of like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You just open the cage. We don't have to defend ourselves or the gospel because we know we can entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly. But Jesus entrusted himself to God in every area of his life, not just the cross. So Jesus is an example for us, not just in his suffering, but in in what it looks like to be fully human. The idea of entrusting himself means that whatever Jesus faced, he was satisfied. Jesus faced singleness and was satisfied. Listen, in the church, sometimes we do a really bad job of dealing with singleness. We can oftentimes lift up a married life, a married life having kids, as the picture of what it looks like to flourish. But the Bible actually makes clear that whether you're single or whether you're married, that you can flourish as one unto the Lord. Jesus showed us a way to flourishing. Jesus showed us what it was like to have longings and desires that could never be met in this world. How to take those longings and desires and direct them toward a good God who promises to satisfy. Jesus is the God who left home. He knew what it was like to be lonely. For many of us in this city, we have left home. We've left family for the sake of living here on mission. We, sometimes we miss our families and wonder, man, would, would it just be easier just to move a little bit closer to our family? Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus knew what it was like to be poor. So college students, he's with you. Jesus chose the path of downward mobility. That God condescended himself to a place of taking on the form of a servant. See, in a world where we're constantly being told that you need this or you have to have this to be be truly human, to be truly satisfied, to truly be enough, we need to look at the way of Jesus, which is to look away from ourselves. Not not toward self-identification, not toward self-expression, not toward self-autonomy, but toward self-denial to find life in him. And like Jesus, we do so so that others would know and trust God. But we got to be careful, and I want us to be really careful when we think about looking to Jesus as an example, because if the sermon ended right now, it would simply be like, okay, go and run as hard as you can for Jesus in your own strength. See, to understand how we live as an example like Jesus, we also need to understand the heart of Jesus' suffering. We have to understand the heart of Jesus' suffering, because you can only live after Jesus' example if you trust Jesus as your substitute. You can only follow him as an example if you trust him as your substitute. And through the cross, we see two life-altering truths in the life, death, and burial 
of Jesus. The first truth we see is our sin is that vile. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. The cross is a no-holds-barred look at the depth of our souls. I believe that's why the stumbling block we see in Romans 9 is Jesus, that he is the only way, and that this way comes through seeing our sin that necessitated the very bloody death of Jesus. Look, we can look at the cross, and we can try to pretty it up, and we can try to, to make this a lot easier on ourselves than it may seem to be. But when we look at the cross, we see exactly how vile our sin is. It's like looking in a high-definition make, high makeup mirror. You know the ones that got the big LED light around them? They're brutal, right? You think you're looking pretty good, and you look in one of those, and you're like, I didn't know my face looked like that. That's the cross. When we look at the cross, we see that it is our sin that put him there. As the old song says, it was my sin that held him there. It was your sin that Jesus went to the cross to pay for. But secondly, we also celebrate the cross. Have you ever thought of how weird that is? That we celebrate an instrument of Roman execution? That it becomes this symbol of hope, it becomes this symbol of rejoicing. Because when we look at the cross, we not only see the horror of our sin, but we see the love of God. We see that it was God's grace to put all of our sin upon Jesus, or as it says here in the text, that he bore our sins. Jesus bore our sins. Why don't you say that out loud with me? Out loud with me. Jesus bore my sins. Let's try that one more time. Let's look at one, two, three. Jesus bore my sins. I didn't prepare you well for that. I apologize. Jesus bore our sins. The sinless for the sinful, the innocent for the guilty. The idea of bearing sins is a visual of the Old Testament sacrificial system where a sheep or a goat or a bull or some other animal would bear or carry the sin and the weight of the guilt and shame of the people. And so Peter has this idea in mind, and Peter has this idea that every time he sinned, he was going to the temple. Every, time, every year, he would go again and again and again to make that sacrifice, but he's looking at Jesus as a different type of sacrifice, a sacrifice that he wouldn't have to do this over and over again, but that Jesus, as Hebrews 10 tells us, was a single sacrifice once and for all for our sins. But for many of us, we do like that old sacrificial system where we do atonement over and over and over again. We're not sacrificing animals, but for many of us, when we sin, instead of running to Jesus, we just try to do more good than bad. We have that little invisible balance in our lives where if we put the, a pebble on the good side, we feel a little bit better, that atonement of our sin. If we care about the right things and vote the right ways and, and be a good spouse or a good parent or a good friend, if we're a hard worker or we live up to the expectations of someone else other than ourselves, then we do these things to atone for our imperfections and shortcomings. But in Jesus, we don't have to do that because he bore the full weight of our sins on the cross. Every sin you have ever committed, every sin you are committing, every sin you will commit were put upon the shoulders of Jesus. It says that he bore these sins in his body, that he lived and died a real physical death, crucified, died, and buried on the tree. 
The term tree is what we, is the cross. And this shows the depth of our sins that Jesus not only became our sin, but he became our curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became our sin to set us free. He became our curse so that we could be freed from the curse. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, there's this one little line that seems to trip a lot of us up if, you, if you've read this before, and it says that he descended into hell. Now, some have actually thought that to mean that on the second day, Jesus descended into hell, like actually went to hell. And they tend to base this off some verses that talk about how Jesus was preaching to the people of Noah's day, but we actually don't really believe, at least personally, I don't believe that's what that means for one big reason. Because what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise. I believe what, what others like John Calvin believe that the cross was not only physical torment, it was spiritual hell. That the fury of hell and the wrath of God was put on the weight, on Jesus' shoulders, a heavy weight poured out upon him that he took our guilt, he took our penalty, he took our shame, he took our abandonment, he took the fury of hell on himself so that those who trust him don't have to. So we rejoice in this. And so secondly, we see not only the, the, our sin, but we see the immeasurable love of God and how Jesus died for us. Tim Keller says, in the cross, God satisfied both justice and love. God was so just and de desirous to judge sin that Jesus had to die, but he was so loving and desirous of our salvation that Jesus was glad to die. We see the love and the beauty of God in the cross. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is an allegory for the Christian faith, there's this one line where Aslan, who is the Christ figure, the great lion, is going to the stone table to pay for the sins of Edmund. And he goes to the table, and there are, there are evil animals around, and there's the white witch. And right before he dies, uh, one, one of, Susan or, or, or Lucy, I can't remember which one, says this. She says, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. You see the beauty and the love of God. That this was not plan B, this was not plan C, D, or Z, that this was the very plan from the beginning. That the moment that sin entered into the world, as Genesis 3.15 tells us, that the serpent would strike man's heel, but man would strike the serpent's head. And we see these shadows of promise all throughout the Old Testament that the God who delivered from the flood would deliver, ultimately deliver us from our sin. The God who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire would deliver us. That he would deliver us to the true promised land. That every story in the Old Testament ultimately points forward to this Messiah who would come and take away the sins of the world. When we look at the crucified Christ, who died and was buried. We see the brutality of our sin, but we also see a love to a depth that we cannot understand. Or simply, as John 3, 16 tells us, for God so loved the world, in other words, or in this way loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And when you start to understand the cross, something really strange happens. Seeing your sin doesn't make you feel worse. It makes you look for the cure. Imagine you've received a cancer diagnosis and the doctor looks at you and says, you know what? We can treat this. We can fight this. We believe we can cure this. 
None of us sit there and say, you know what? Like, I don't want to expose that part of my cancer. We say, go, go, go get all of it. Discover all of it, uncover all of it, get all of it. When we understand the cross, we see it as lovingly exposing us that Jesus has come to deal with our deepest problem through his suffering for us. This is the very heart of the gospel, and it is what will motivate us to live the life that God has called us to live. And it gives us a certain hope. The last thing we see is the hope of Jesus' suffering. The desire to live a new way is by looking and, behold, looking and beholding Jesus on the cross, this new motivation. And we see in verse 24 that, this, that Jesus died on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That word and can be a little confusing. Um, it's not two actions, but one. Imagine, okay, if you've ever driven in, uh, in around Forest Hills, there's Hyde Park Avenue. If you've never driven there, you probably have the busiest road you can imagine in your neighborhood. People on Hyde Park Avenue decide it is a good idea in the middle of traffic to bust a U-turn in the middle of the road. Anybody else experienced this in Boston? Okay, so you, you got the visual. This person realizes that they're going to the wrong Duncan, and I got to go to the other Duncan over here. And so they're going down the road, and they realize, I'm going the wrong way, so I'm turning away from something. But what are they doing? They're turning toward something else. See, the idea of dying to our sin and living to righteousness is one action. This is repentance. Repentance is turning away from or dying to our sin towards Christ living in righteousness. Again, Clowney says, Christ's suffering is our model because it is our salvation. It does not simply guide us. It is the root of all our motivation to follow. Our living to righteousness follows in Christ's steps because he died to sin in his atonement. I think this is the reason that many of us struggle when it comes to the idea of repentance, because we turn away from something, but we don't necessarily turn towards something. We think, okay, I just need to avoid sin. So I'm not going to die to sin. I'm going to avoid it. So I'm going to turn away from it. But what we end up doing is we just say, well, you know, I'm going to turn toward just being a better version of myself. I'm going to turn toward trying harder and not doing that again. But repentance is not a promise to get it right the next time. It's saying, I'm going to turn away from my sin. I'm going to turn away from finding my satisfaction in something other than Jesus. And I'm going to rest in the finished work of Christ. That's what it means to live in righteousness. And what we find when we do this is we find healing for our souls. By his wounds, you've been healed. By his wounds, you've been healed. Not just surface level sins, not just bad habits, but our very hearts. Tom Schreiner says that these are wounds that heal the root of our sin. I often like to think about the way that the gospel works in our lives is it's like plowing a field. And if you ever plowed a field or you ever tilled a garden, sometimes you're going along and, and you find some things in the middle of that that are inhibiting growth. So you find a big rock in the middle of your garden or in the middle of your, of your farm and you gotta remove that rock or that pebble. And sometimes we do that and it's really easy. We just get a shovel. I did make these guys move. Okay, I wanna explain this. I did make these guys move concrete. However, it was for the Lord. And they were removing a fence at our, at our church and they had to get a shovel and they had to dig down really deep. Sometimes when it comes to the way that the gospel works in our lives, you gotta dig deep. You gotta uproot some things. Sometimes you run across that tree stump that has roots that seem like they go to the very center of the earth. 
And there are some things in our lives that God is working on that feel like there's a root that's wrapped around our very soul. Some things that really touch our identity. And we're like, I don't know what, I don't know how I could live without this thing. What the gospel does is it's a call for us to die to sin and turn to righteousness. That God will heal even those wounds. He will even heal the things that seem that they are so core to our identity that we find our identity in Christ. See, Jesus heals our wounds because he knows our suffering and he entered into our suffering. It means that what you suffer, he's felt. And we see this invitation in verse 25, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As Jesus invites us to turn to him, he invites us to life with him, his presence with us. So how does this give us hope for a new way to live as we close? You can only live this way if you look to Jesus again and again. You can only live this way if you look to the cross again and again. Going back to what it means to be a network of churches, we're only gonna sacrifice to plant churches if we look to the cross. We're only gonna spend time with people who are are different than us if we look to the cross. We're only gonna give our time and our money and our resources and be willing to put our yes on the table and go if we look to the cross. Because there Jesus promises life. Whatever struggle you're facing, whatever trial you're facing, it means you don't have to suck it up, but it means you can come to a Jesus who says, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And we can live this way by embodying this for our neighbors. What would it look like for us to see the poverty and the brokenness and injustice and racism and and isolation and loneliness and despair all around us and step into that like Jesus does? Henry Nouwen said that Jesus is God's wounded healer. Through his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy and life. His humiliation brought glory. His rejection brought a community of love. As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others. We can bring healing to others by looking to the cross. Now, you may be here tonight and you may be thinking, you know what? I don't have that hope. I I don't, I don't, I haven't trusted this Jesus who promised he would take my sin, who would suffer for me. And this new life could be yours, but you have to look to the cross. You have to see your sin that Jesus paid for, and you have to see the love of God that Jesus would die in your place. And you can receive that through trusting him. You can give your life to Jesus today. There will be people who will be up front after the service who would love to talk with you, love to pray with you, and love to discuss what it looks like to follow Jesus. Churches, let's radically put Jesus at the center of our lives by looking to the finished work of Christ. Let's pray.